ahead and start. We can start with a prayer. In the, name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. So, uh, welcome y'all today uh, for our, I think it's our ninth credo class. Time is going by pretty quickly. Very happy to see the regulars here. Um, <laughs> y'all are the regulars. So, if, if you were going to ask me what... If, you, if, if the people from Credo and RCA forget everything that I teach them, what are the main things or the main thing that I want them to know? I'm going to say the three things. And those of you who've heard me talk before are going to know these three things. Three things that every single Catholic has to be able to answer. Has to be able to answer not only for their own, self, their own selves, but also, I think, to be able to spread and defend the faith. The first is this. Why are you a theist. Why do you believe in God? We all have to answer that. And you think, you go to most people, why do you believe in God? Well, I don't know. Most of the people believe in God because their parents believe in God. They always have. They've never thought about it. Now, if you've been here, you should be equipped to at least give some sort of an answer to be able to say that I believe in God because uh, God is, is necessary. We live in a contingent world. You must be sustaining it in existence in this present moment. You've got your answer. Number two, why are you a Christian? We've got to be able to answer that question. And so what is the answer? The reason that we are Christian is because we believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead as an historical event. He is still alive today and that we can share in the power and the glory of his resurrection. But it's the third question that we're going to somewhat address today. And it's probably the most difficult or challenging question. Why am I a Catholic? Why am I a Catholic? And again, I think most people, if you ask them that, their response would be, well, because my mom and dad were Catholic. And my grandparents were Catholic. I mean, a number of you here are becoming Catholic. Hopefully, we'll have your own answers or response. How many of you in here are in RCA would like to answer, why are you interested in becoming Catholic? Does anybody want to answer? No. Everybody's silent. Y'all are contemplative today. Anyhow, we're going to talk about it a little bit later on. This is the question we're going to talk about today. Why am I a Catholic? Because we're going to focus on the topic of the church. Now, this is my probably one of my favorite topics to talk about. I love the Trinity. I love Jesus. But when it comes to ecclesiology, which is the study of the church, this is what I prefer, or this is the point that I like the most. So, I'm going to give you my answer or my response. And this may sound kind of shocking. Imagine if someone came to me as a priest and tried to say, Father, I want you to leave the church. I want you to become a Jehovah's Witness. I want you to join the... Uh, Joel Osteen's church, whatever. I want you to join one of those churches. Come with me. I, I would say one question, and this is why the question I, I ask everybody. 
Yes or no, did Jesus found a church? For me, this is the decisive question. Did Jesus Christ, while he was on earth, found a church? What is the answer? What do y'all say? Yes. Yes, he did. Scripture's pretty clear on this. And this is the passage we're going to keep going back to. It's Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through about 20. It's whenever Peter, then first name Simon, says to Jesus, Yes, you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who is uh, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds, and this is verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death, or the gates of hell, depending on the translation, shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Right there, Jesus clearly founds a church. I will build my church on you, Peter the Rock. Now, this brings up the second question. If we can agree that Jesus founded a church, which church is it? Which church is it? Because right now, I believe there are about 10,000 Christian denominations. And I'll be willing to bet every single one of them believes they are the right church, the church that Jesus Christ founded. So my response is usually, okay, if you want me to get you to, to leave my church and become whatever you have, you're going to have to show me that you belong to the church Christ founded. And as we'll see, there are very few churches that can actually claim they not only go back to Jesus, but have the proper qualities or characteristics of the church. And so that's what we're going to explore. We're going to talk about the church, the church that Christ founded. And in theology, I always like to give you big fancy words, ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the theological term for the study of the church. Now, you say, Father, this is great. Jesus Christ founded a church. I love being Catholic. I'm glad we're studying ecclesiology. But define your terms. What is a church? When Jesus founded a church, does it mean that he founded St. Peter's in Rome? Or is it an invisible church? Or is it the people's hearts? Are we all members of the church? What are we talking about? And again, if I was giving you a whole semester on ecclesiology, we'd really get into this. But what I want to do is, is begin by looking at the original term that Jesus uses. The Greek in scripture is ecclesia. Ecclesia. We're going to look more about the word, what it means a little bit later on. And we're going to look at what the catechism says. And I'm not one, and again, I haven't been one to sit and give you long quotes from the catechism and bore you to death. I don't, I don't like that at all. But I want to read this, and it's from Numbers 751 and 752 in the catechism. And on the Credo website, I'll put uh, the relevant passages. It says, the word church, in the Latin ecclesia, from the Greek 
ekalein, which means to call out of. Uh, so like to call, kaleo, I call in Greek. And so the church is to be called out of, means a convocation or an assembly, in very general terms. It designates the assemblies of the people, usually for a religious purpose. Ecclesia is used frequently in the Greek Old Testament. Remember we talked about that? The Septuagint, the Greek translation that some people don't accept. For they, they used it for the assembly of the chosen people before God. Above all, for their assembly on Mount Sinai, where Israel received the law and was established by God as his holy people. Again, in the Old Testament, whenever they translated it later on in the Greek, they didn't mean church like we mean church today, as we're going to see, but it means that gathering or that assembly of the chosen people. By calling itself church, the first community of Christian believers recognized itself as heir to that assembly. In the church, God is calling together his people from all ends of the earth. The equivalent Greek term kyriake, from which the English word church and the German kirka are derived, means that which belongs to the Lord. So it continues in 752. In Christian usage, the word church designates the liturgical assembly, people who are gathered for mass, but also the local community are the whole universal community of believers. We are the church, the universal church or the local church. These three meanings are inseparable. The church is the people of God that gathers in the whole world. She exists in local communities and is made real as a liturgical, above all, Eucharistic assembly. We come together for mass, we're coming together as the church. The Eucharist actually forms the church. She draws her life from the word and the body of Christ and so herself becomes Christ's body. So again, it's kind of a long explanation, but the church, it shows the church is more than just the physical building. The church is that group of believers, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, those who are united to Jesus, specifically through baptism. But there are a number of different ways that we can use this word, ecclesia or church, and what we're going to do is we're going to try to probe that mystery. Church is a sort of a general term, and then really look at it, what it means to be Catholic. Now, if you sort of read the catechism or you read your, your theology, you're going to know that there are a lot of names used for the church, or even symbols for the church. One of the more popular ones since the 60s has been the church is the people of God. The people of God. We are God's people. Now again, is this a bad term? No, it's not. But there's a great emphasis, kind of like on the popular gathering of the people of God. And so indeed, we belong to God. We are his people. We are the chosen ones. But scripture also uses, and probably this is one of the most common, the body of Christ. And so it sort of describes Jesus as the head of his body, the church. That's in Ephesians 5. We're going to look at that more when we get into marriage. Christ is the head. He's the one that guides everything. But we are his body. We belong to him. We're united to him. And he is guiding and directing the church. 
But here's the key. A scripture describing the church as the body of Christ, it means or it points to the fact that the church is not something purely spiritual. It's not abstract. It's not just some sort of an essence floating around. Remember we talked about transubstantiation? It's not some substance. It's a physical reality. There's a spiritual dimension to it, but if you have a body and the church is the body of Christ, it is going to have a tangible, real, material presence in the world and in the culture. It's visible, which I think is very, very important. Another very popular image is the church is the bride of Christ. We'll probably look at this a little bit more later on, and maybe Heather kind of did it a little bit in salvation history. If you're going to use an analogy that is present throughout Scripture, we call it the spousal analogy. The words, the, the idea that God tends to use in Revelation to describe his relationship to his people are spousal imagery. So what do you have at the very beginning of the Bible? Genesis. Man and woman creating the image and likeness of God. That's it. In the middle is the Song of Songs, the beautiful love poem. And at the very end, you have Revelation, which talks about that wedding supper of the Lamb. And so throughout Scripture, the Lord uses the image of marriage and the love between man and woman to describe his love and his union with the church. So if you read the Gospels, you'll see the spousal analogy. John the Baptist says, I am the friend of the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom who has come to marry his church. Again, Ephesians chapter 5, Christ is the head who is the head of the body, but also is the bridegroom who comes to cleanse the church, purify her so that he can unite to her. And so that spousal imagery is so important throughout scripture and salvation history. It's been kind of popular uh, since John Paul II. He really emphasized it in the theology of the body. And so the church is the bride of Christ, and it describes that great love and that great union shared between Christ and his church. Now, as again, I think I've said before, I'm going to say it again, all of these analogies describe certain aspects of the church, but you're never going to describe it all. They're always going to fall short. They're always going to be lacking in some degree. One of the most popular, most important uh, sort of use for the church is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Now many people will say, well, how, how is that possible? The kingdom of God is in heaven. Wait, not exactly. Again, Pope Benedict is one who's really emphasized this. Yes, the kingdom of God is in heaven, but we believe the kingdom of God broke in all, into earth, into the world. So we can say, where is it? The proverb is, who is it? Jesus is the kingdom of God. He is the reign of God coming to the world, setting up his kingdom in the world, which is not of this world, but of the other world. And the church, because it is the body of Christ, is that expression, although imperfectly, of the kingdom breaking into the world. And so if you're a member of the church, a member of Christ's body, and guess what? You may belong, render unto Caesar what is Caesar. You may be American, you may be French, you may be living in some South American country, but you are also a servant of the kingdom. And Jesus Christ is the king and you belong to him. And so there's always, of course, some sort of, this is brought up over the history, and I think Father Pelsey will look at it next week when he talks to you about church history. 
about what's the relationship between church and state. Sometimes it's kind of gotten confused. Well, the Pope, I'm the representative of the king, and so therefore I have temporal power. But is that really what the Pope or the church is about? The church needs to have some influence, but it is not part of the state. It works alongside of the state. Of course, that gets into politics and social justice, and we'll look at that a little bit later on. Tied to that, one of the, the terms we could use for the churches uses the New Jerusalem, the city of God. Why is that? Well, of course, we knew that Jerusalem was the capital in Israel, Judah actually, technically, where the temple was, where the Holy of Holy was. But what is it? What's the basis of Israel? What's the basis of, of, the, of the old kingdom? It was the 12 tribes. So Jesus, in a certain sense, is establishing a new Israel, a new Jerusalem, built on the foundation of what? Foundation of what? The 12 apostles. The 12 apostles are like the 12 tribes of Israel. And, the, and but, but you could also use the term in Jerusalem as the temple. Another word to describe the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit or the temple of God. So in a certain sense, it, the new Israel, the new Jerusalem, or the new temple are all sort of tied together. But again, it shows that physical presence of the reality of the church on earth. But probably, though, one of the most important terms that we're going to use for the church, and this is something that Pope Benedict talks about a lot, after Vatican II, and I can talk a little bit about it, but we're going to look at Vatican II more next week, which happened in the 60s, was all the bishops getting together and following the Spirit to sort of bring the church into the new world, into the modern world. And so there was a big debate over ecclesiology. Uh, this is kind of boring stuff for you, possibly. Ecclesiology is what we're going to refer to the church as. Well, there was one part or one faction of the church should be described as the people of God. Sort of a very earthly way of looking at things, emphasizing sort of democracy and whatnot. But the other one that I think ends up winning out was the one that Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, was behind is communio. The church as a communion of persons. Why is this important? Because we talked about this last week. Remember, we are all created in the image and likeness of God. And who is God? Father, Son, and Spirit, a communion of persons. And so we, as members of the church, are called to live in communion with each other, a union with, and image the Trinity. Where does that unity come from? The unity comes from the gift of the Spirit. The unity comes from baptism where we are all united in Christ. And what's so important about this, as we're going to get to this later, this communio assumes there's more than one person. I want you to understand that, this idea that, oh, I've got this personal relationship with Jesus. That's wonderful. We all need to. But no one is saved alone. We are saved as members of the one body of Christ. We're all connected to each other in this communion. 
We talked about it when it came to faith. Where did you get your faith? Someone handed it to you. It came from somewhere that we're connected to each other. So it's not just me and Jesus. We are all in this together. We're not saved alone. Everybody has a part to play in the drama. As we're going to see in a little bit, that communion can be broken. There can be rifts. There can be dissension. There can be schism. There can be lots of problems. And it's not what Jesus wants. He wants us to live that communio personarum, that's a Latin phrase for communion of persons, so that we on earth could image the love shared in the Trinity. And then finally, another word, and this is, we're going to get into this later, so I don't want to jump too much. The church as mystery or sacrament. And then we're going to explain this later on when we look at the sacraments. What is a sacrament? We're going to look at seven sacraments. But in the term, like in theological terms, a sacrament is something that is visible, that makes visible an invisible reality. Not fully. There's a mystery. You see some of it, but some of it's hidden. And so the church is the sacrament of salvation. The church makes visible the saving power of Jesus. And so that idea that the saving power of Jesus, the salvation we talked about, you can't see that. But in the church, particularly as we'll see in her sacraments and scripture, the church makes present God's love and his salvation. And so yeah, there's a spiritual dimension but there's also got to be a physical dimension. And because of the term sacrament and mystery, we see that it's tied to the Eucharist, the body of Christ. It's tied to the church buildings. Over and over again, we talked about that, and, and I'm going to drill this in as something for me that is the most important. When the incarnation, remember I said that, when God became man, the body entered theology through the front door. If the body, if the physical was bad, God would have thrown it out. And that's one of the heresies of the early church, that somehow physical reality, because it's fallenness, is bad. But it's not. God, who is pure spirit, wants to use created physical reality to communicate his love, to communicate his life, to communicate his grace to all of us. And so in a certain sense, we could say that all of creation is a sacrament. Because what it does, it reveals to us God's presence, God's love. Because we didn't deserve any of this. It's all a gift. And so the church is the sacrament of salvation is that revelation of God's saving presence in the world. Again, this is difficult to be able to give this kind of language because we haven't gotten to the sacraments yet. But those are all terms that sort of describe the nature of the church. But as you see, it's a, it's a great mystery. I'm not going to be able to pinpoint every single little detail. I see some people are freezing in here. Brian, would you, Brian, you know what the thermostat is in the music room? Turn it over a bit. I, of course, love it. <laughs> this is fantastic. Okay. So any questions? Are you all with me? 
does this, this makes sense? This is not the fun stuff. We're going to be getting into the fun stuff. This is kind of just terms and defining our terms. But the fun stuff, and this is why I love physiology, is it, starting now. Y'all are going to accuse me of freezing y'all out of the church. <laughs> yes, Brian. Correct. Yeah. So yeah, I, for just the physical, the church is a reality. It's physical. It's not purely spiritual. That's one of the real difficulties, or I would say sort of heresies. The church is invisible. That's what Luther said. No, the church has an invisible dimension, but the church is physical, bodily, corporeal reality. It's the body of Christ. And that the invisible dimension shines through the visible dimension. So, this defines or sort of gives you a lay of what the church is by using different terms, but it still doesn't answer the question. So, Jesus founded a church, and we've looked at some of these different dimensions the visibility, the invisibility, the body, the connectedness of Jesus, our connectedness grace that flows through the church. But it still doesn't tell us which church Christ founded. still doesn't tell us that. And that's what we've got to really look at to be able to discern the church that Christ founded. Now, within the context of what I'm going to explain to you all now, we're going to get to what I think are the most powerful arguments but this is something that has been around since the beginning in the earliest days of Christianity. All right, we want to belong to Christ Church, but how do we know what Christ Church is? There could be a bunch of different people competing and saying, I, I, I belong to Christ Church, I belong to Christ Church. And so throughout the history of theology and Christianity, there has been this development of the idea of the four marks of the church. Four marks. These are the four characteristics of the church that Jesus Christ founded. These ought to be the church, the characteristics of, let's say, every member of the church, every local church, the universal church. It doesn't always exist. But when you look for these four things, this points to the church, what the church is, and ultimately, I think, to the church that Jesus founded. Anybody want to tell me what the, the four marks are? It's one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Very good. One holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Oh, that's a tautology. The Catholic Church is Catholic. Yes, I know. We're going to look at, we're going to look at what that means. But, but what I want to do is in using these four marks, and the Catechism does use those four marks to describe different qualities, when we look at them, we're going to look at very specific things that really help us understand that passage that we just read about Peter and the church being built on the rock of St. Peter. The first characteristic is one. When we say the church is one, what does that mean? 
means that there are not 10,000 churches. There are not a bunch of different churches that belong to Jesus. There is a unity in Christ's church. He has one body, not 10,000 bodies. And there's a unity there, singular. And so, yeah, there is that one church, but there should be that communion of the members and the individual people within the church. So one way you're going to know that this is Christ's church is there's a unity together of the members, a communion ultimately driven by love. Jesus prayed at the Last Supper. He prayed that they all may be one. And why is that important? Why is it important to have that unity in the church? Because it reflects the Trinity, the different individual persons living in love, living in communion, with Christ as the head, reflects the union of the Trinity. And so we are called to live in love. The church is supposed to be united. One mind, one heart, one focus. But the truth is, has this always been the case? No, it's not. And this is one of the great tragedies is that over the course of the 2,000 years, just like when in Israel, when Israel split from Judah, the two kingdoms, we've seen a lot of splits in the church. People who've broken off, who said, I I'm teaching the truth, or I I'm t telling you what Jesus Christ truly is. And this is the difficulty. How do we know? And that's what we're gonna get to it. We're gonna have to have someone assure that we're believing the one true thing, that we're not going off in different parts and making our own church. And so throughout the history of the church, as I said, we have 10,000 denominations. And granted, everyone hopefully claims to be Christian, but everybody has their own way of doing things. Is this what Jesus intended? No, it wasn't. And the reason is, is because there's no unity of belief. What we believe is not the same thing that the guy down the street believes in a little Bible church. There are certain central things that are true that we all believe, but there are a bunch of differences. So either Jesus was the Son of God or he wasn't. Either we need to follow the Pope or we don't. Either that's really the Eucharist or it isn't. How do we know the truth? And so there's got to be a unity of love, but also a unity of belief. But throughout the history of the church, there have been divisions and breaks. And you're going to see this next week. But the two main ones come first in 1058, what we call the Great Schism. Now I'm going to put this online that this is when the two sides of the church, the Latin church and the Eastern Orthodox church split off. Now I could sit here and explain this for the next five hours and just confuse you. I'm going to try not to do that. Even they basically some disagreement about the role of the papacy, the role of the Holy Spirit. There was some politics, some ego that got into it. But basically, the Eastern Church, so basically we would see the church center in Rome, but there's also a center in Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, not Constantinople. Um, 
but what happened was, is the bishops and patriarchs were fighting over different things, and basically there was a split. And again, between the Catholic and what we call the Orthodox. So the Orthodox, those churches are basically divided according to sort of uh, ethnic divisions. The Greek Orthodox, the Armenian Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox. They all are Christian. They have legitimate priests, legitimate bishops. There's just a different understanding of church. From what we have in Rome, in the Latin church, where we believe that the church is universal. It's whole throughout the world. We're going to get into that. What they believe is in every diocese, every local church, is the universal church. And so there's more of a focus on locality, language, culture, and that liturgy, rather than something completely and totally universal, with Rome as the center. That just confused you, didn't I? Yeah, I'm sure I did. So anyhow, there's going to be some maps and stuff that I can show you online to explain it. The other one, of course, comes in the 16th century with the Protestant Reformation. Luther, Jan Hus, all of that, Calvin, where they saw some very legitimate problems in the church. What we'll learn about next week, the selling of indulgences. And Luther and his pals, rather than work within the church to resolve them, split. Split. And sort of developed his own theology, and since then, there's just been more and more division. And so we have these Protestant denominations throughout the world, and different branches, Baptist, Calvinist, Wesleyan, Evangelical, even they wouldn't be considered mainline Protestants all connected to Jesus, but not as close as we would say the Orthodox. So these are distinctions that I probably shouldn't be getting into. The Catholic Church recognizes the different Orthodox churches with the term church. But we will say the Protestants are ecclesial communities. And so it's a little fancy, it's a little different word why? Because they're a step away. At least they're the sacraments that we believe are in the Orthodox Church. But when you get into these Protestant denominations, the evangelicals, they share one baptism, they share a belief in Jesus, they share more or less scripture, but they don't have the sacramental structure. There's still a union, they're still members of the body of Christ, but they're not in full communion with the church, particularly centered around the papacy, and Peter, as we'll see that importance. Now what makes it even more interesting is that even though the church is one, it's not like everything is the same. Because there are different expressions of Catholicism according to different cultures. And so you have Eastern Catholics who still love the Pope, who have beautiful liturgy, but they have their own traditions and language. So, if we have, like our friends from Iran, Lebanon, Lebanon yeah, so you're, okay, I'm, get, I'm getting, I'm getting, the Lebanese, so they are the Maronite rite, Iranians the Chaldeans, 
You've got the Ethiopian Catholics, you've got all Coptic Catholics, all these different terms with all these different liturgies all over the place, but they all are considered Catholic because they're in union with Peter. And so the Maronite rite is done in Aramaic, correct? Yeah. Own music, own liturgy, beautiful stuff. Uh, the, the, and, but they're all in union with Rome. So I can give you this map that show, will give it to you that shows all the different branches, but they're all connected. We're all brothers and sisters. We all believe the same things, but there's different cultural expressions of it. So there's not some sort of a hegemonic domination coming from Rome. Everybody has to do everything the same way. Well, we belong, we in America, we belong to the Latin rite, the Roman church. So Latin is our language. This has been going on for, for centuries. It's part of our culture. Just like French is part of the culture, the language here. Language is important. Music is important. But there can be a unity even though there is a difference. But we're at that one mind, that one unity in the body of Christ. Does that make any sense to you at all? I'll probably confuse you more than, than anything. So it's one. The unity of the church. You can read the catechism. It'll explain it better and some of the maps that I'll give. Number two. And then we'll do this one and then I'll probably take a little break. The church is holy. And the church is holy. What does that mean? Well, the church, as the bride of Christ, as his body, because of his union with Christ, is holy. It takes Christ's holiness. What does to be holy mean? It means to be set apart. It means to be consecrated. It means to be filled with grace. And so the church is holy because of the grace of Christ. But it shows us that we as members of the church should be striving for holiness. Holiness being what? Union with God. Loving Him fully and loving our neighbor. That's what holiness means. We're going to look at that more when we get into the saints. But the reality is the church is not impeccable. There is sin in the church. And so how do you reconcile these two things? How do you reconcile the fact that the church is holy, but there's also sin in the church? And that's the great mystery, particularly of our time. How can you call the church holy when you've had these sinful priests, when people are doing these horrible things, there's abuse, there's heresy, there's division, there are these scandals in the church. And it's a great mystery, but what often happens is we expect something from the church that Christ never promised. There's a great quote, I think it's from Vincent de Paul, maybe from Francis de Sales, that the church is not a gallery of saints, but a hospital for sinners. That we're all human, we're all fallen, we're all being made holy. There are saints in the church, but we're striving for that holiness. And yeah, we can focus on the scandal, but it's just as much as there's scandal, there's been a lot of good in the church. There are saints in the church. People just don't like to focus on that. And so one of the articles that I'm going to post online comes from Cardinal Ratzinger. You know, I love Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict. And it's an essay called, Why I Am Still in the Church, or Why Am I Still in the Church? 
He wrote this in the late 60s, and I think I maybe mentioned it a little bit earlier. He just on it for a retreat a few, uh, a few months back. So he notices, look at the sin in the church. How can you call the church holy when there's so much sin and so much garbage? His ultimate argument's going to be, yeah, that exists, but you know what also exists? Love. And that you can love things that are not perfect, and by loving things that are not perfect, they can be transformed. It is the already but not yet. We are holy, but we are not fully holy yet. We're being transformed. But what he does is, is I love it. He's, he gives the, this beautiful analogy. And I really encourage you to read this essay. One of the symbols that the early church fathers used for the church is the moon. I didn't talk about that uh, in one of the, the main ones earlier. Why is the church the moon? Well, for one reason, the church traditionally, the moon's traditionally perceived as feminine. Luna, the A at the end. Christ is the sun, but what does the moon do? The moon reflects the light of the sun and acts as that beacon, the soft, gentle light. And so the moon is like the church, who receives all of her light from Christ and then reflects that light to the world. That's the sacrament. Along with Luna, the moon being a symbol of the church, Mary, as we'll see, is often described. If you look at Our Lady, she often is on a crescent of the moon. But she's also described as the moon, uh, as the one who radiates Christ. But what he says, this is a valuable analogy, but since now, at that time, we've landed on the moon, we know what the surface of the moon looks like. It's a rock. It's craters. It's dead. There's no life on it at all. But yet, when you look at it from a distance, it's spectacular and beautiful. And so in the same way, he says, this is what the church is like. Yeah, the church is beautiful, the church is beautiful and we can see in the lives of the saints holiness and goodness and in the sacraments, the resplendence of Christ, just like in the moon, but you can also dig a little deeper and you can see the brokenness, the dryness, the disparity, the corruption. They both exist together. And so in the same way, that's the mystery. They both exist together. Not only in the laity, but also in the clergy. I like to say, well, Father, there's a scandal in the clergy. The priests and the bishops are doing horrible things. They are and shouldn't happen. We're called to greatness. But look at Jesus. Twelve apostles, one, the head of his church denied knowing him three times, one betrayed him and got him killed, and everyone but John abandoned him at the cross. So as bad as we are, we've got a better track record than Jesus. <laughs> but I think it's important. We expect perfection. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't expect people to be holy, but look at the guys that Jesus chose. They were weak, they made mistakes, but they repented in the same way, not making excuse for crimes amongst the, the leaders of the church or amongst anyone. But the weeds and the weak have got to grow together, but it doesn't mean the church is not holy. The argument that we will make towards the end here is the real reason the church is holy is because of Mary. Mary is that perfect symbol of the church, and she is holy. She's the one who sort of embodies the church and the holiness present uh, within the church. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to take a break now and then come back and try to sort of wrap things up with the last few stuff things, uh, particularly begin looking at the hierarchy of the church, the teaching authority, and the role of Peter. So we've looked at two of the marks of the church. One, unity. Number two, the holiness. Uh, and that's why the lives of the saints are so important. Um, today is the, for those who don't know, in the church's calendar year, every day there's usually a, a feast or a saint you can celebrate. Today, as St. Elizabeth of the Trinity, who was a religious sister in the 1900s, uh, 1800s, I'm sorry, 19th century, uh, who died and was very known for like that interior life of the Trinity dwelling in the soul. So there's a little relic of hers. We'll look at relics and weird Catholic stuff a little bit later on. It's not like a pearl arm or something. It's just why Catholics do that weird stuff. So the other word is Catholic. The third characteristic, Catholic, what does that mean? Well, Catholic is basically translated as universal. We belong, believe the church is universal. It is open to everyone. It's not just for Americans. It's not just for Lebanese. It's not just for Russians. The church is open for everybody. Christ wants to communicate his grace to Jew and Gentile alike. We're saved through the one baptism. There's that unity there. But that, that everyone belongs to the church. It's called to belong to the church. It's a universal scope. Now, the point about this that I think a lot of people discuss is, well, what about, and I get this a lot as a priest, Father, what about people who don't belong to the church? What about people who are not even Christian? Can they be saved? And there's this, this phrase that is, you'll hear as you grow in your Catholicism, no salvation outside the church. What does that mean? There have been some interpretations where you could say, well, if you are not under the Roman pontiff, you're going to hell. If you're not a baptized Christian, you're not going to make it to heaven. But that's not how we interpret it. We interpret it as the Lord judges everybody on their own conscience and their own heart. Is there very clearly possible there may be someone, people in the world, who've never heard of Jesus, who've never had the chance to hear the gospel, who live a just life? Yes, the Lord can save them. He doesn't will any of us to be lost. He, we're all his children. He wants us to be with him. But the church is the way that he's going to communicate that grace of salvation. Whether we realize it or not, if someone's saved, they're saved through Jesus. And whether or not they realize that the grace is going to come to the church. So the church is still instrumental, the body of Christ. We're called to be missionaries. We're called to go out and proclaim the gospel and spread it. Now granted, someone can reject the truth, can reject the gospel, that's a different story. But we are called to bring the gospel to all ends of the world. That's what Jesus said before he ascended to heaven. And so that points to the Catholicism or the Catholicity of the church. We're open to everybody. But it's this last one that I think we're going to expound on the most. Apostolic. From the word apostle. Now, the church is founded on the apostles. And that the apostles, as we know, are the ones who Jesus taught and charged to send out to the world to proclaim the gospel. Well, what happened is, what goes on when these apostles died? 
And we know in the Acts of the Apostles, which is the book that comes after the Gospels, whenever Judas had died, Judas committed suicide, the Apostles gathered together and they prayed and they basically drew straws to point Matthias as the one to replace Judas, to take over his bishopric, to take over his office. And so the Apostles were given authority to guide, to teach, to govern the church. But they, the Lord knew they were going to die, so he gave them the way to pass on their authority. And so we believe in apostolic succession, that John would have appointed Polycarp, Polycarp would have appointed somebody else, and you could go all the way down. These are the bishops of the church. Again, we're going to talk about this, that there's a hierarchy in the church, the top, of course, is the Pope. Then you have, like, the, the bishops under him, even though cardinals and archbishops are all tied into that. But a bishop is the successor of the apostle. It would take you a lot of work, but you could go to Bishop Bevel's Desitel and trace his line all the way back to Jesus. Somebody laid hands on someone else, and it passed all the way down. In the early church... This is what happened. There were these preachers going around, people claiming to be bishops. And so they had to carry around a card, basically a scroll, that showed their pedigree. Oh yeah, I was ordained by this guy, who was ordained by this guy, who was ordained by Peter. And so you'd carry around a really large scroll today, it's 2,000 years, but it shows there's a connection to Jesus. The apostles are still there. The apostles given the charge to teach, to govern, to sanctify the church. And there is, within that church, a hierarchy. You know what a hierarchy is. There are rules. H-I-E-R-A-R-C-H-Y. You know how to spell it. A hierarchy. And this is what people don't like. This is one of the struggles today in our sort of very democratic mind. The church is a patriarchy, it's a hierarchy, I don't need to follow all those people, we're all the same. Well, there are, there, there are levels in the church, and Christ has arranged that, not as some sort of an antiquated way of doing things that oppress us, but there were all the mem- body, we're all parts of the body to work together. And so Jesus has appointed these apostles, and then under the apostles, you'll have the presbyters, the priests, who work with them. Under that, you have the deacons, and under that, you have the lay people. All members of the body, not one better or more important than the other, but we're all called to work together. We're all called to work together as members of the body. And so the authority given to the bishops and the priests and the deacons are not just to say, oh, look how great these people are. No, it's for the service of the church. They are there to teach and to guide and to govern, to protect the deposit of the faith, to be shepherds, to guide the sheep. Because Jesus is in heaven, yeah, but he knows as physical beings, we need someone in the midst of us. And so even though the church has gotten so big, that bishop is the one who's the head of a specific diocese. And that's the way it's basically worn out, is that the world, the church is divided into different dioceses, and archdioceses. And so the bishop is the leader of that diocese. And each diocese you divide even more into individual parishes. Geographical parishes, usually. And so the priests are the heads there. 
So there's a hierarchy, what we call subsidiarity. The Pope is not going to come meddle in what's going on in Lafayette. He trusts our bishop, and the bishop trusts the priests. And if there's a problem, it goes up the chain of command. If not, it becomes complete chaos. How are you to know what is true and what is not true? Because if it's every individual church, and oh, I'm going to make my own church, and there's not connection to Jesus, not connection with a deeper authority, how do you know what you're being taught is the truth? And that's where, I will, where I will put it in here, so these are the four marks. So the apostolic, the church, you can trace back to the apostles and their teaching. And so that's what, when you, when I, sometimes, when I was uh, in a previous parish, there was a guy who was a member of an apostolic church. Where an apostolic church? He said, really? So can you show me and demonstrate to me that what you believe is what the apostles in the early church believed? Absolutely, he said. Show me, you, do you believe in the true presence of the Eucharist? Well, well no, it's just a symbol. Show me where that is in the early church. Couldn't do it. And so you're claiming to be apostolic, but you're not really, because there's that teaching the apostles gave. Paul was clear, we're handing this on. We're there to guard the deposit of the faith. And so that goes back to my question. If someone wants me to leave the Catholic Church, maybe I will, but you're going to have to really make a concrete argument that your church is the real church. What I normally will say is, you know what, as a Catholic, I may be completely wrong. Maybe I got the wrong church, but I sure as heck know your church is not founded by Jesus. There's no way the Lutheran church is founded by Jesus. It came with Luther later on. There's no way our Savior's church is founded by Jesus. It was founded 20 years ago, whatever. I'm not saying that people aren't doing good work and proclaiming the gospel, but it's not apostolic. You know, we have the writings of the apostles, but we also have the writings, and you'll see in the lesson tomorrow, an apostolic age, you can go read writings from the first two or three hundred years of the church and to find out what the bishops taught, what the church taught. And you'll see that even though we have a deeper understanding of it, it's the same stuff we believe today. So, uh, you know, tell people, don't write a check with your mouth that your butt can't cash. Don't tell me your church is apostolic when you can't trace what you believe back to the early church. That's a quote you want to put in there. <laughs> Who knows what movie that comes from? Movie quotes? Okay. Dazed and confused. 1994. <laughs> but when you talk, so these are the four characteristics. What I want to do is move on. But even though this last one is tied to apostolic. You got the bishops, you got the leaders of the church. But the real sticking point for a lot of people who are not Catholic, aren't necessarily the bishops. you got people claiming to be bishops all over now, even though there's no connection to the apostles. What's the real sticking point for a lot of people, Protestants and Orthodox? What's the, the contentious point? Is the role of Peter and the role of the Pope. The role of Peter and the role of the Pope. And that's where if we're going to try to understand the church, we're going to have to look a little bit at Peter and the papacy. Now, we have Pope Francis today, and we can trace the papacy all the way back. We can trace it all the way back to Peter. The popes and that succession handed on. And the pope, we believe, is the successor of Peter. 
But Peter is the vicar of Christ on earth, the mouthpiece of Jesus. And there's a connection, and it comes back to that passage that we looked at. And what I want to do is try to help you understand the importance Peter plays in the church. To go back to that passage from Matthew that we talked about, where Jesus says he founded a church, to go back and let's look at some of the things Jesus said there to be able to better understand what are these fundamental elements besides these four things of the church Christ founded. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. There's so much to unpack there. So Peter's name originally was Simon. Simon bore Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. Jesus changes his name. In the Bible, who is the only person that can change someone's name? God. Only God. Only God can change your name. Because for the Jews, the name sort of encapsulated who you were as a being. Well, the words that they use in the Bible, Greek, are Greek. But Jesus didn't speak Greek. And so the word that Jesus uses for Peter here is Petros. You are the rock. And what happens is, a lot of the times, the people who are going to get into this will say, a Protestant will say, Petros means a little pebble. Peter is the little pebble. And upon this rock, the next word is Petra. I will build my church. <laughs> Their interpretation is they're two separate rocks. And that's a way to avoid the importance of Peter. But did Jesus speak Greek? Yeah, he did. But was he speaking Greek here? No, he was speaking Aramaic. And fortunately, we can see in some of the writings of St. Paul what G Peter's name in Aramaic, Aramaic would be. And it's Kephos. Kephos. Kephos, which means rock or boulder. So Jesus, Peter is basically a translation. Petros is a translation of Kephos, and Peter is a translation, or some sort of transliteration of Petros. But what did Jesus really say? You are Kephos, you are rock. You know, he's giving him this personal name, you are rock. And on this rock, Kephos, I will build my church. And so Peter, it's clear. First thing, if you want to look for the church Christ founded, Peter has to play a role. Peter has to play a role. So again, that's why I say, I may be wrong in the wrong church. Maybe I should be Mormon. Because actually Peter does play a role in Mormon. Peter believes that Peter gave the keys to Joseph Smith. But I know Peter didn't play no role in your church. So I'm not joining that church. I'm going to stick with my church, even though I love you and respect you. And on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. Or the gates of hell. How do you interpret that? Basically, you can interpret it that the, the gate, the powers of evil are not going to destroy the church. The church is always going to be here. Or you can say, actually, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is going to beat down or the battering ram the gates of hell and good is going to conquer evil. But regardless, the church is going to be here until Christ comes back. The church is going to be here as his body until he comes back. And Peter is going to have a special role. 
He's going to be that rock. And you see it. He's an apostle, but if you read the Gospels, particularly Acts of the Apostles, Peter's always different. He's a spokesperson. He's listed first. He's often listed separately from them. And Peter has a special role, and you can sort of study and understand that uh, when you understand the role of Peter in the church. But I'll continue. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What, what does that mean? For the Jew who would have been listening to Jesus, they would have automatically known, and I'm trying to find the passage, that Jesus was referring to something in the Old Testament. Again, keys are what? Keys are a symbol of authority, no doubt. Oh, where is it? Symbols of authority. You know, you get the key to the king of the city whenever you have an honor. But Jesus was actually making reference to something in the Old Testament. A reference to the book of Isaiah, chapter 22. Um, and he's, God is speaking through Isaiah this prophecy. Um, about these people, these two guys named Shebda, Shebna and Hilkiah. And so Shebna is the person who is over the household. He's the steward of the, the palace. He's not the king, but he's kind of like the prime minister. He's the one that, that, is the, that, that, that governs what's going on. Well, Shebna has not been doing the right thing. So God through Isaiah says, Shebna, I'm kicking you out. And I'm going to put this guy, Hilkiah, in your place. He's going to take your office. He's going to govern for you. But listen what it says. God is saying to him, I will place on his shoulders, um, Hilkiah, the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a sure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. That's uh, Isaiah 22, verses 18 to about 22. It sounds a lot like what Peter told, Jesus told Peter. I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. I'm the king. You're my prime minister. And just like the queen, the queen allows the prime minister to do stuff. She's not going to actually get meddling in the day-to-day -day affairs. But the, king, the prime minister acts on behalf of the king. I'm giving you the keys. I'm going to back what you decide. Consult me, please, but I'm going to back what you decide. And that's what Jesus is ultimately saying. He's giving those keys. He's referring back to Isaiah, saying, you have the authority to bind and loose. You're the prime minister. You're special amongst the other ones. Does that make sense? So this is why we believe that the successor of Peter, the Pope, Pope Francis, whomever, not perfect, but special because they, he has been given special authority to govern. And the early church saw that. One of the books that I'm going to recommend is uh, The Tomb of St. Peter. For those who are going to Rome, we're going to see The Tomb of St. Peter. 
We know where the tomb of St. Peter is. There is inscription there from the second century, if not the first century. People coming to pray at the tomb of Peter. They understood he was special. Another in one of the catacombs, the catacombs of Calixtus, where the early Christians were buried, there is a crypt where nothing but popes from basically the third and fourth century are buried. If they didn't think the pope was special, then why would they have done that? The early church understood. Now, granted, understanding of the office of Peter has developed over the years, but Peter is not above the apostles. He guides within the church. But he is the leader of the apostles. And so, in a great degree, what he says goes. But he's not a dictator, he's not a tyrant. We've had bad popes, absolutely. But Jesus promised again the church would be infallible, not impeccable. And that gets to, of course, the other thing that becomes the struggle. The fallibility of the Pope. What do we mean by that? Infallible, of course, means that there's no error. But th that doesn't mean that the Pope can't make mistakes. <clears throat> if the Pope said, and eh, you know what, I think the Astros are going to win the World Series. No, it's not how it works. We believe that the Pope is infallible when he speaks on faith and morals, but he speaks in a very specific, very limited role, what we call ex cathedra. And he's only done it twice. But here's the bigger thing. We believe not only is the, 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 the Pope is infallible, but in a certain sense, the teaching of the church as a whole, Christ assures is the truth. And this is what we call as the teaching authority of the Pope and the leaders of the church as a whole, the magisterium. From the Latin word magister, which means teaching. The Holy Spirit sends the church to guide us to truth. How do we know how to interpret scripture? How do we know what's right and wrong? How do we know what to believe about Jesus? Well, if you leave it to each individual person, there's going to be chaos and confusion. So Jesus gave the hierarchy to govern, but to teach. And so there's a whole theology of how the Pope works with the bishops and actually also works with the laity. We believe there's a sense of the faithful. Praying, suffering Christians know the truth. And the church needs to listen to it, respond to it. And when the bishops gather together in certain councils, which we'll hear about a little bit more last week, like those first seven ecumenical councils, what they teach we believe is infallible. It's dogma. We need to believe in these things. But it's not there to oppress us. It is there to guide us and ensure that we are following the truth and don't go into error. Don't fall prey to the wolves. And so the magisterium, the teaching authority of the church, with Peter and the bishops, is there to help us. But here, I'm going to sort of wrap this up now. Here's the issue. As I said before, and a lot of people who don't like the church, particularly the Catholic Church, they'll say, Jesus, yes, church, no. An opposition to organized religion as a whole, but particularly an opposition to the Roman Catholic Church. It's a patriarchy, it's a bunch of old men. Look at the corruption, look at all these things that the church does. I don't want to follow that, it's just me and Jesus. 
Well, the truth is, a lot of the people, as Bishop Sheen said, they don't hate the church, they hate what they think the church is. A lot of people have some pretty serious misconceptions about the church. And so how, how do we do this? How do we understand the church and her humanity, but also in being guided by the Holy Spirit? And, and I'm going to wrap this up by posing this question. I asked you at the beginning, what is the church? But it's not the proper question. Who is the church? Who is the church? Yes, we are the church. But the church, as I alluded to earlier, can be embodied in one person. Before I get to that, though, a lot of the times we see the church as a thing, as an institution, as a bureaucracy. But the church is a person. And even if you look at all the words the scripture used to describe church, even the words themselves, kirka, dikirka, la iglesia, ecclesia, all, all of these different words, except church in English, all share one thing in common. Do you know what they all share in common? They're all feminine. All feminine. We don't have masculine and feminine nouns as they do in other, other languages. Aramaic, what is, what is church? Is it, is it a feminine word? Yes. Yeah, so English, we're weird. We don't have feminine words. The church is a she. She's the body of Christ. She is our mother. She is the bride of Christ. That's another term, mother, I guess I should have used. She's our mother who guides and protects us. And so, who embodies all of that? The she of Mary. Our lady is the church. All these characteristics and qualities plus the sinlessness, we believe, are there in Our Lady. And so Mary becomes a symbol, the perfect best symbol of the church, as the mother, as the bride, or feminine. But what happens is, people generally will associate the church with an institution or a bureaucracy like, like the government. And there's bureaucracy in the church, but you got a billion people, you need some of that. But they'll also associate it with Peter. Peter is the symbol of the church, the Pope, the papacy. And I'm not saying that that's not important. Peter is. But we've got to see that both of those different roles or symbols play together. Mary, the church of love. Peter, the church of office and authority. But Mary and Peter are in relationship to each other. So when I would go to I was in Rome for five years, and my job was giving tours of St. Peter's. And I tried to, to make it fun and interesting and, and sort of evangelical as I was taking people through. And what I would do is bring them, if you go to St. Peter's, and I'll put, put this online, the, the, and, and the apps is the beautiful bronze chair of St. Peter's. St. Peter. Of course, it, done by Bernini. And there are four bishops all in the corners, seemingly holding up the chair. And these are Augustine, Ambrose, Athanasius, and Christison. All the four great fathers of the church, two Eastern, uh, two Latin. And, and this is the symbol, the chair, the cathedra of the authority of the Pope. And so I'd go there and say, you know what? 
this is the, the great Petrine Peter symbol. And it sure seems like here it is, the authority of the Pope, they're lifting the chair up, they're larding it over us. But that's not what it's about. If you really pay attention, not only with Baroque art and architecture, it's not bottom up like Renaissance was, it's top down. You see the beautiful window, if you know St. Peter's, there's the Holy Spirit, and there's all these clouds billowing down. That's a downward motion. And so what's happening is these guys aren't lifting up the chair. The chair is actually coming down as a gift from heaven that Christ gives to us to guide us. And you've got to pay particular attention, but actually none of those four bishops are holding the, the, the legs of the chair. There's a, there, each one of them has like a loop of a rope coming out of it, and they have their fingers hooked through it. So what they're really doing is the chair's coming down, they're hooking their fingers and giving to us. And laying it on the ground is a gift from heaven to guide us. And so Peter is not there to lord it over. Peter's there to serve. Peter's there to give. It's like the chair of the Father. You come there for wisdom, not to be punished, not to be disciplined, but it comes down from heaven. But what I would do is I'd step back, and the real center of the church is the tomb of St. Peter, Bernini's great Baldacchino. But what there, you can see where Peter is buried under there. But above is Michelangelo's great dome. Beautiful, beautiful dome. Um, majestic, particularly knowing that most of the stuff under has been excavated for the um, Scavitor. But his, without computers and everything, his, his architectural skills were so good, it didn't collapse. But if you look at the color, it's blue. And I've always explained, I said, this is the proper symbol of the church. And we've already looked at Peter and what he means. Here's Peter there at his tomb. But the blue is a symbol of Mary, almost Mary's mantle covering Peter. So I always draw an icon of it. I have Our Lady covering Peter with her mantle, and Peter is in the center holding the keys. They're both important, but the Marian dimension, the receptive, feminine, church of love, of beauty, of holiness, that enshrouds, it shrouds, or covers the church of magisterium, of authority, of office, of teaching and guidance. You need them both, but one is more important. And so this is what we, I think, as Catholics, have got to emphasize. Yeah, the role of Peter and the role of the Pope, but this is one of the reasons people kick against it. Instead, it, we, and we talk about Peter and the Petrine dimension, but we've got to talk about the Marian dimension. The church is our mother, the church's bride, the feminine dimension, one of love, the one of prayer that works together with the Petrine dimension. And so that's why I think <clears throat> we're going to move forward. This is, this is absolutely necessary. And so if I, with everything we talked about today, we could talk about all of these different marks of the church, we could talk about the saints and the holiness and the history. The real question is, who is the church? Mary is that perfect symbol of the church, the church of love, the church of compassion, and then Peter is there within it, the church of authority. We need them both, but they've got to be seen, the Marian and Petrine dimension, in relationship to each other. So that's my ecclesiology lesson. Um, I'm going to hope to be able to put images 
That's my goal for tomorrow. I did get the two lessons online, and I'm gonna get this lesson online tomorrow, but all the different links on the Credo blog so you can go and see some of these images and, and get a better vision of it, of what St. Peter's is like and the deep symbolism that is present there as we come to understand and to love the church. That's what it is. The church is not perfect, but, but as Catholics, we love the church. We love our mother. We love the bride of Christ. And we're proud to be members, even though we know the church is not perfect. Neither are we. None of us are. We believe through the church, Christ will continue to guide us and purify us. So next week, which is the last class, because Thanksgiving is the following week, we'll have a little break. You'll be thankful for that. Unless you want to come on Thanksgiving night. You bring your eggnog and your turkey leg. Uh, we're going to look at the history of the church. Now, I'm going to talk to Father Pelsey about this, about how I want it taught. We're going to go through the basic, like, four epochs of the church, some basic figures, some basic ideas, uh, so that we can see how the church has evolved uh, to where we got today. So let's go to the glory be. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.